Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, good morning, Tom. I guess it is still morning for you. It's actually more morning for you than it is for me. <laughs> I am more morning than Russ. Yes, that's it's right. true. And it's a good one. Yes, thank you. <laughs> that's that's kind of sad. <laughs> there it is. The plant still survives. You yep. still have two empty desks. I don't know what yep. to do about this. I mean, you know. It's, uh, it's one of the world's unsolvable problems. Unsolvable problems. Why Tom needs multiple desks. Yeah. You know, he sits in one place to write notes and he sits in another place to use his laptop and another place to code. That's, that's what it is. He's got a coding chair, a, a gaming chair and a writing chair. Is that? Oh, right? there you go. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Three separate desks. And this morning we are joined by Bjorn. I don't know. Bjorn Ivar. Yeah. Bjorn. Bjorn Ivar Teigen. Okay, in, in okay, good. Thank Norwegian you. Norwegian pronunciation. Yeah, yeah, great. And you said you're in Oslo, which is awesome. I, I've been to Norway. I don't know that if I've ever been to Oslo, though. I've been through the Fords, basically, up the Fords. Oh, yeah. Through West Coast. Uh, yeah, right, yeah. Um, the southern the southern part, right? And so, yeah, that's all of, the, all of Norway I've been to. I mean, I've been to Iceland and Greenland. I've been to Reykjavik and Nuuk and, you know. Holland and other places, but for some reason, never Norway, other than, like I said, going up through Stavanger and stuff like that. So today, uh, well, I don't know. Um, I guess we should just start off by we are starting and talking about buffer bloat, right? I saw this really cool article by Bjorn on buffer bloat. It's a very interesting topic. It's not something we talk about a lot. There was a big thing about buffer bloat several years ago, a lot of research. And we actually changed some things in the way TCP does its um, slow start and blah, blah, blah. But it hasn't been talked about in a while. And Bjorn, I mean, talk to us a little bit about what buffer bloat is, I guess, to start the conversation for people who may not completely be on board with what we're talking about. Sure. Yeah. So buffer bloat is um, a phenomenon that causes latency uh, or more latency than is necessary in networks. And if you think about it, like the fundamental thing that a network is supposed to do is to transport information from A to B, right? And the the main performance metric for that is, in my opinion, latency, because what you actually care about it's not th it's not throughput. It's it's how quickly can I make something happen at the other end of the link, and um, the way to measure that is in in delay in time, right? Um, and buffer bloat causes much higher delays than what is necessary in the network, and that affects user experience for all kinds of things. So, so how does uh, it? How does a buffer get bloated? And is yeah. it permanent or is it like just a temporary condition? That's a, a good question because it's a little bit of both. And one of my sort of hobby horses here is that there are two kinds of buffer bloat or buffer bloat is sort of um, the, the, the typical thing people refer to uh, when they talk about buffer bloat is basically uh, congestion control algorithms creating a standing queue at some kind of interface. And the way that happens is that uh, TCP will probe sort of try to send more and more data 
until it gets a, a, a dropped packet, right? And the way most um, implementations of, of queuing have done that in the past is to basically just you, you drop a packet if the if the queue is full. So basically, TCP will send until it's filled the queue. And so if the if there is room for a lot of data or or, or a lot of um, if if the queue can hold enough packets to cause a lot of delay, uh, it will <laughs> basically. Okay. So so basically, the TCP congestion control algorithm across multiple flows will get to the point where one packet is going into the queue and another packet is being kicked out, but it's not the same packet. It's like 10 packets apart because there's 10 packets in the queue. The queue is filling at the same rate it is being removed or being cleaned out or reduced, but yes. it's just that you have this center part of packets that are just sitting there because they, because they, because the queue can't empty any faster than the packets are coming in. Is that exactly. a fair that's a, that's a, that's a great way to describe it. Yes. You okay. end up with, uh, with a a full buffer that every time a packet goes out, a new packet comes in, and then the buffer is just statically at always at max capacity. Okay. Uh, and then of course networks change over time. All I mean, the applications will cause spikes in load, and then it goes away, so the buffer can empty again. Uh, but um, these full buffers can hold sometimes many, many seconds of data. And um, that means that any sort of interactive stuff or creating a new connection to somewhere else, anything that uh, shares that same queue, when it's when it's bloated, will have a terrible user experience. Okay. Uh, and especially so with like interactive things, you know, like gaming and video conferencing or, uh, or stuff like that. Um, and this can happen, um, I mean, with that kind of buffer bloat where one congestion controlled flow has sort of filled the whole buffer and just keeps filling it, keep, keeps keeping it full uh, or yeah, maintains the full buffer yeah, right. over time, mm -hmm. then, then the, that phenomenon can last for a long time as, or as, as long as that flow is basically keep, still uh, has data to send, you know? Yeah. So, um, so long-lived elephant flows, basically big stuff. Like yeah. If you're streaming a movie, you could have buffer bloat that'll last for the length of the movie, two hours or three hours with the buffer. Yeah. Load, potentially. Which is, which is hurting everybody else in the household sitting behind the same router, or on the same street. If you know, if, if the buffer that's bloated is in the router upstream of your house, not just the one in your house, then it hurts everybody. Yeah. And this is this is a surprisingly common phenomenon especially on um, uplinks from uh, like the link up to your isp is typically uh, bandwidth limited to whatever you bought right if, if you pay for 100 megabits they rate limit you to 100 megabits and that rate limiter uh, is often a source of buffer bloat uh, and then the wi-fi link in the downstream is often a very bad uh, source of buffer bloat and then also on the mobile side, uh, 4G, 5G networks are typically terribly bloated in the downstream. I've measured like five seconds of delay on on a 5G link in the center of London. So, so it's, uh, wow. It's so, so, so two kind of questions there. The first is, does this also impact jitter? Because jitter to me is also a performance killer in networks. Yeah. Um, and 
you know, or is it more like it's always a constant delay or is the delay always jumping around because the, the buffer is being or the queue is being emptied at different rates? Yeah, that's, a, that's also a great question. And uh, it, I, I, that, the only good answer is it, it depends, right? <laughs> if, it's, uh, if the buffer is actually kept full all the time, uh, you, will, you will see a lot of packet loss, which impacts user experience in a similar way to Jitter because basically, I mean, to, data arriving too late is equivalent to loss. Um, but you could have like a standing queue that basically adds the same amount of delay all the time. And then your jitter measurements would be basically you'd see zero, zero jitter, right? Uh, but in practice, uh, I mean, TCP doesn't actually like stick to the same constant rate. It's that sawtooth, right? So it will, it will tend to sort of fill an empty, fill an empty, fill an empty. Um, and then, I also want to mention this this other kind of buffer bloat, if you if you will, which is um, not really caused by standing queues, but are caused by um, whenever a congestion controller controlled flow has reached a uh, sort of sustainable level of throughput, and then their link rate suddenly drops below that rate, so that it's like a um, is. It, it, the the analogy I like to use is like it's it, it's um, it's as if you're driving on the highway and you're going like a hundred miles per hour and then suddenly the road changes to like a dirt road with no warning and now you're going too fast and it's causing problems and it's a similar kind of thing where TCP will send at some high rate and then your Wi-Fi link your Wi-Fi router can decide to suddenly cut your link rate by a factor of 10. Um, and now packets are come, 10 packets come in f to the queue for every one packet that's, that's leaving, right? And then you get sudden spikes in latency. Uh, and and that's, it's it's a different problem from buffer bloat. And, and the reason to even keep them separate is because they require separate solutions because buffer bloat can be solved by basically changing your end-to-end -end congestion controller at both ends of the link, whereas this sudden latency spike caused by drops in capacity has to be solved like at the bottleneck. It's not something the end-to-end -end can do something about because basically by the, by the time the sender knows that it's a problem, it's way too late. <laughs> the spike is already there. Interesting. So just to solve the to solve the second case, then what would the congestion con, would the congestion control algorithm need to do? Somehow predict a link speed change? Not that obviously. Yeah. Well, that that is um, there's a limited set of things that an end to end congestion control algorithm can do, even in theory, right? So one one is you can uh, underutilize the link on purpose. To sort of avoid it happening in the first place. So, so but under subscription, which is under subscription, right, yeah, right, right. Exactly. Which is the old joke that QO, if you install, if you configure QoS, it just means you're too cheap to buy more bandwidth. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then the other thing is to try to predict uh, the the changes. But I mean, li there literally is no way for a, a, an end-to-end -end congestion controller to solve this problem. You absolutely have to fix it at the 
at the the place where the queue happens and my um i i think the i can't think of any other ways to fix it than to basically isolate the flows or the users or something by having them in separate queues and then if if a, a spike if the link rate drops then whoever's actually sending at a rate that is now too high they will experience a latency spike but then everyone else if if ever if anyone else has decided to do the under subscription thing and avoid and and try not to cause any spikes in the first place then they can still get snappy low latency service for that link because the queues are can be served round robin and and uh uh, they are not affected by the fact that there's a lot of packets in a different queue. That's interesting. Have you in in your work have you noticed um, in terms of congestion control and its effect um, here in the buffer bloat scenario? Have you done any experiments or have you noticed anything comparing and contrasting TCP and Quick in this manner? I know Quick borrowed a lot of congestion control thinking from TCP, um, but any any thoughts on that on the, the sort of the transport side of it? Yeah, uh, I have tested. Um, I've done some experiments with with TCP and comparing it to BBR, um, and um, for this latency spike or sort of adapting to a variable link, BBR actually does a bit worse because it it takes it basically tries to do a time average of the delay of the link, and then it it reacts less quickly to a, a sudden spike. So it it basically goes fast for longer, <laughs> so the spike gets worse. So you're okay. So you're saying quick versus TCP BBR, or are you comparing BBR to like Cubic or some other TCP algorithm? Yeah, B- BBR to Cubic. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. I gotcha. haven't actually run quick, but quick mostly does BBR, right? Unless I'm mistaken. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> yeah, it takes a lot of the ideas from from existing TCP in, um, implementations. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like they're che- they're they're sucking ideas from each other. Yeah. So probably true. Yeah. Yeah. So um let me think. I was thinking here. So you you seem to be focused on 5G and wireless. Is there a particular reason? Is it worse in wireless? Because I would think it might be because if you're talking about the variable bandwidth problem. Is that what you're facing or looking at? Yeah, I think um that's so the, the the reason we're focusing on wireless is is that um, I mean I, I work f- at a company that um, focuses on sort of in home network quality, um, measuring delays in 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 people's home network and then making the analysis of, of that available to to the service providers uh, to make them sort of aware of issues, finding root causes and that kind of thing. And um, we see that the the home Wi-Fi is a very big source of these kinds of problems. Um, and it's it's interesting because for some things, like the um, if the if the buffer bloat is on your ISP's uplink, uh, and it's caused by a rate limiter, then the rate of that link is almost constant, right? And and then the buffer bloat can be solved with an end-to-end fix. So something like L4S. Uh, I don't know. Is your are your listeners aware of L- L4S? Do you Probably think? Probably not. <laughs> okay. So L- L4S is a um, uh, a change to the end-to-end congestion controller. Um, so it it's applicable to both like TCP and Quick uh, and everything, um, where 
the application can signal through a, a bit in the IP header that um, the transport is L4S aware, and that then they will treat um, the, the each bottleneck link will have two queues, and then the L4S aware traffic goes in in sort of the low latency queue. And the low latency queue will signal congestion using uh, ECN, okay. which is another bit in the IP header. Oh, yeah. And uh, it will signal in um, a more nuanced or accu accurate way. So the the way ECN used to work is like if you if you mark a packet with ECN, the congestion controller has to treat it as if it was a packet loss. So it goes um, in a slow start, with... which causes everything to go nuts. Yes, exactly. And then, so with L4S, the ECN is is reinterpreted so that you're not looking at a single ECN marking. You're looking at the percentage of packets that has uh, ECN marks over an interval, and then you can basically use that to more more accurately and more with more precision sort of tune the uh, the the sort of uh, the sending rate of the of the sender. And the problem with that solution is always going to be you have to change every every operating system and every application, every browser. Yes. That's going to be the problem. Yeah, that's true. But there are there are a few big ones though, so you can sort of start with some of them and then yeah, if you there, get Windows a, there are Chrome, some concerns. Yeah, if you get Windows, yeah. Linux, and Chrome and Mac OS, you've yeah. probably covered, you know. Yeah, you could cover a lot, yeah. and then you need to in install um, different scheduling and, and queuing at the relevant bottlenecks. Yeah. So uh, your ISP's uplink would be um, one of those relevant bottlenecks. And then if you, if you do that, uh, then the congestion controller can uh, get a signal uh, from the bottleneck, uh, which more accurately reflects the, um, the need for uh, sort of tuning back the throughput if it goes too high. And then you don't get this standing queue because basically you're not you're no longer filling the buffer to wait for a packet loss. Uh, the signal is the congestion signal from the bottleneck is better. Yeah. Uh, so you can actually fix that buffer bloat with an end-to-end -end solution. Um, but with uh, the variable link rate stuff, it's harder because you need to go in and in every every point where you have a variable link. Which means all the Wi-Fi routers and all the uh, mobile uh, cell towers in the world, right? Uh, at least <laughs> has to have an upgrade. So it sounds so, like we're actually hurting ourselves by trying to go as fast as we can over Wi-Fi um, all the time, because what happens? Yes. What, what would happen is if if I said, okay, on average, I'm going to have ten Wi-Fi devices sitting in my house or wherever it is in this building. So therefore, I'm never going to let any of them get above 10% of the link utilization, even if only one is operating right now. Then I would actually be better off from a performance perspective than saying, well, nobody else is on, I'm using 100%. Oh, somebody else came on, I've just dropped to 50%. Because the number of devices and the amount of traffic that they're consuming and even what their signal quality is, when I walk from room to room in my house, and at one point I have X amount of bandwidth because I'm only five feet from from a, uh, from an AP and I walk into another room and I'm 30 feet from an AP and my, my performance goes down. All of that stuff is too variable. It's too hard. It's almost like you want to calculate what's the best possible rate 
the best possible low rate that you can get to and kind of fix the link at that. And do you think that would actually make it perform better than trying to like scoop around all over the place and get the best that you can? In terms of the performance of interactive applications, that's absolutely a much better solution. Okay. No, no doubt about it at all. So the only, the only reason not to do that is that your bandwidth hungry applications now perform worse, right? Yeah. So, um, backups and downloads and stuff like that would suffer. Right. Uh, but I think I think your suggestion is a really good one. And if if the ISPs uh, would be comfortable sort of tackling the storm that this would cause because all of their customers would get a bad <laughs> yeah. um, speed test result. You know, mm -hmm. that, that's, that's basically the reason this is not happening. I think the ISPs know that if they do this, the, their customers or a lot of their customers will do a speed test and, and call customer service to complain. And that's expensive. <laughs> so um, actually deploying this solution is sort of too big of a hurdle, even if, on the other side of that, um, everyone would have better Wi-Fi. Yeah, <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you can almost apply your L4S, L4S to this, right? You could you could say, I don't care how big, how much 10% of the link is. I know that 10%, I should only use X amount for low latency traffic, regardless how big the link is. Because I know on yeah. average, even though the link is 10 gig right now, I'm, I, on average, I'm only getting one gig. So I should only use 10% of that. And maybe you could actually mix those things. So go ahead, Tom. You were gonna. Um, I was so I, I just sort of my uh, comment about the side comment about this. It seems that um, you know we started building the internet for one set of applications, and then we started adding other applications with very different, you could say, almost diametrically opposed requirements. When you're thinking about bulk data transfer versus interactive application, we have. I don't think I don't think everybody appreciates exactly how opposite these things are, how different it is to do a voice call versus download, click and download a file. Like it all feels the same because we use our computers in similar ways, you know, but I, it, it feels like the, you know, packet networking didn't start out um, doing the stuff that we're doing with it now. And I think this just does, maybe it's an obvious point, but yeah, no, <laughs> all no. of these, all of these troubles deal with, you know, stem from the fact that we have different applications than we did 30 years ago. Yeah, and this was the genesis of ATM that didn't work because it doesn't do the other end very well. It doesn't do large data transfer very well. And then even Michael Bartel recently wrote a paper that's out on Archive, if you want to look for it, that is about um, how we ruin the internet by expecting it to do these real-time, near real-time communications. We had to build, rebuild the entire infrastructure to make it work for near, near real-time stuff. And how that has really driven centralization and all sorts of other things. That's I think that's an interesting point, Tom. That that's something we yeah. don't often think about. Yeah, I agree as well. It 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 really is that sort of optimization problem where, and we've decided to go far far into that one corner, right? Where yeah, uh, we're optimizing for maximum throughput for everything, and that's partly because mark like the the way these products are marketed is bigger number on the box is better yes so uh, the everyone wants more 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 numbers high numbers uh for everything and then you end up basically uh, designing systems where one application can hog all of the airtime on wi-fi and um even 
sort of uh, the the way to get more throughput on Wi-Fi today is to basically do more aggregation, which means bigger time time chunks at, at a time, right. which means worse multi multiplexing, right? <laughs> because now every everyone every time one station gets uh, to access the spectrum, it keeps it for a longer time. So um, that causes more jitter and more more uh, delays. And the but when this is actually one of the things I did for my my thesis work is to analyze the Wi-Fi protocol and how these um, competition between different stations is handled in the Wi-Fi protocol. And um, basically, I found that if it's if it's more than two devices competing <laughs> at one hundred percent, your your ninety nine percentile delay it grows so quickly. If you have like three or four or five competing, it's like you can forget about doing video conferencing without lag. It's, um, and, and it's not, not because the average delay is bad or, or the average, like the, it, the algorithm is really great at distributing the throughput. So everyone gets an, an equal share of the airtime over time. But the whenever you lose the lottery and, and sort of have a few collisions in a row, you end up with like hundreds of milliseconds of, of uh, delay for the next packet to send, to be sent. And then in addition to that, you get all of the queuing behind it. So it's like... Yeah, because while you're waiting, your your computer is queuing stuff, waiting to go out on the wire that it can't send. Yeah. And and you basically, you, you can end up not receiving any data for a second. Um, and that's noticeable on any... Any sort of, as you say, real time or close to real time yeah. application. Yeah. And and interestingly, you know, one of the ideas you have in this in the article is about link diversification. And this is something I think we used to do. I, I know we used to do in corporate environments. We don't do it in home environments, which is to have wireless and wi and wired on the same machine. And then you break them up in some way so that you're only sending low latency stuff over one link. And you're sending high latency stuff over another. In fact, I did a design for a retail store that did that, where they would do file transfers for inventory over a satellite link, because all they had available to them in some locations was like an ISDN, and like they didn't want to mm. put their file transfers on ISDNs. So they they put in a satellite link, and we built these very complex access lists so that all the file transfers, you know, for inventory and stuff would go over. Uh, or training videos or whatever would go over the SATCOM link because nobody cared. You know, it was going to be locally cached or whatever. It didn't matter how long it took. Right. And then, like, all the credit card transactions went over ISDN because you got a customer sitting in the counter trying to run his credit card. You don't want them to wait on that video file. Yeah. So link diversification, I think, is a really good one that we're not really doing a lot with right now. Oh, absolutely. If you can if you can have a separate link that you avoid, to con that you... Where you can avoid congestion at all, um, or entirely, that that's obviously the most uh, ro robust solution because then you you don't even have to deal with schedulers and stuff like that to to make it better. But there are a bunch of good solutions for for both of these problems because um, so there there's some some great work by by Dave Tart and Tuukka Heilan Jurgensen and and others um, on fixing buffer bloat in the Wi-Fi. Uh, stack and this is has been in the Linux kernel for uh, many years or close to a decade, I think. Um, so it's it, the solutions are out there; they're just not necessarily deployed where they need to be. 
Um, yeah. So yeah. Um, we, we've talked a lot about the network edge um, and all the things that happen there, but do you have any thoughts about in, in the core in, in, you know, in, in the backbone of the internet um, is there any place for sort of active congestion management from that perspective or are all the problems basically at the edge and the big routers in the middle were, were, were pretty solid on. I, I, I have to say that I, I'm not an expert on core networks, uh, but one of the things that makes this easier to handle in core networks is that you're basically multiplexing a much larger number of, uh, users, right? which makes it that like the statistic, the statistics become easier because you're sort of um, the, the random uh, differences between all of your users make, make it so that the load is more uh, uniform or it's, it's sort of less spiky in the core just because all of your users use the networks uh, in, in, slightly different ways and then it averages that averages out over time but to do that to get that the effect you need to have large numbers of users and so in the core networks that works out better <laughs> so multiplexing there is slightly easier uh whereas on wi-fi is like three or four or five users at a time and they may be very very correlated so uh that's that's one difference but i think um i I wouldn't be surprised if this is a problem in core networks as well some of the time because uh yeah network network traffic is very very bursty and so you only need to be a little bit unlucky to have um a bunch of users creating a spike at the same time and then you can get problems right link links tend to be fatter in core networks too they they're more able to absorb you know, large, large events. And, but uh, also uh, there's, there's a lot happening in interconnect um, people doing private peering and stuff like this for versus just doing everything over like a transit provider. And so I, I would say that it, it's, I would still consider it the core of the network, like where you're, where your small ISP peers with a content provider or whatever. And th there's lots of opportunities for speed steps there. Like we talked about, you know, one gig to 10 gig, 10 to 100, 100 to mm, 400. Yeah. And so that's still in the core. But um, it's also and it, it's still a big fat link. But still, there's uh, you know some of the same th things that we're seeing in the edge that you were talking about. Yeah, I actually think a really good place to look for this would be in an IX fabric, because it would actually be pretty centralized. It would be pretty easy to run the same sorts of tests that you would in a home. And if you could get Equinix or any of you know links or any of the guy, any of the players in that space to open up their fabric to let you measure what they're doing and you have a lot of people connected to a lot of people and a lot of different speeds and a lot of cross traffic so you might actually be able to see it in an ix fabric before you would see it in a private or a public peering point to me because i think those would be harder to open up and harder to see compared to an ix so that would be a that would be an interesting direction to think about, and I would be very curious about buffer buffer bloat and IXs because almost all our traffic goes through internet exchange points nowadays. It, it crosses at least one IX fabric, and so you know if you're seeing dual, dual buffer bloat, you're seeing it in your local home, and then you're seeing it in the IX. That would have major major impacts on your uh, on your performance end to end performance. Um, and then, you know, go ahead, Tom. 
I was just going to say the other interesting thing about those fabrics that you're talking about, Russ, is that a lot of them are run not not for profit. They're just yeah. people want to be able to connect to each other, and yeah. and it's a great model. But but also you get a lot of different decisions that people make that are not necessarily driven 100 by performance. And so that's another reason that like what you're mentioning yeah. there, Russ, I think is really would be interesting to look at. Yeah, it would be. Um, yeah. So. The other thing I think is interesting, the, the, the bottom line point of your paper or your research here is that we may be driving the internet to do something it's really not designed to do and that end-to-end congestion just can't solve this problem. We need to step in with like ECN, congestion notification of some type, to solve this problem if we're going to keep doing what we're doing today. I mean, the other option is to do what we're doing in 5G is we bring all the content to the edge and we make the path as short as possible which I wonder about the practical limits of just making the path as short as possible forever. Like how, how much shorter can we make the path? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what we keep doing. I mean, making the path shorter is, is good, right? Because then your minimum latency goes down. Yeah. Uh, but the thing that affects uh, your user experience for interactive stuff is those once in a while events that cause enough latency to be noticeable you know yeah and if there's too if there are enough of those or if there's too many of them uh the user experience suffers a lot because like the playback buffers in in a in a game or in a video conference application or certainly with like vr xr stuff can only absorb so much right so um and and the user experience is better if they don't have to absorb anything because then they can build smaller uh, playback buffers in the first place so you get a more snappy experience where where things respond more quickly and and it feels smoother. So part of that, I guess, you can improve with moving data or or servers closer to users. But uh, if yeah. that last link is a wireless link and uh, yeah. we don't solve the reliability problem of those improving the minimum latency isn't really going to affect the user experience as much as people might hope because that that doesn't solve the reliability problem it solves the sort of best case problem or it improves the best case it doesn't remove the worst case which is what you actually want to be looking for yeah exactly i think i think that, and i think that's the key we often in networking try to improve the best case without thinking about the worst case yeah uh, that's that's a bad that's a bad network habit that we have. It's very it's a very, very natural thing to do as well. I mean, if you first you want to make sure that you can actually connect, and then you run a speed test to see how fast you can go. Yeah, and uh, that that is basically looking for the best case because you're you're optimizing until your speed test is great, and then you just leave it. Yeah, um, and that is a, like finding and solving the worst case problems is a very different kind of engineering task because then you need to be monitoring things all of the time because you never know when the worst case is going to happen. So you need to be watching and uh, you need to be watching with um, tools that are good at pinpointing where the problem is uh, because you can identify, like you can measure a, a latency spike on an end-to-end path but then if you have no tools for pinpointing where in the end-to-end path that latency happened, uh, there's really 
not much use in that those measurements, right? Yeah. Um, unless there are patterns and stuff like that that you can sort of use to to pinpoint. Or sometimes it's obvious because if you have a Wi-Fi link, that's ninety nine percent of the time your problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, um, but it's true across network engineering. We we envision yeah. the best case routing protocol convergence. We never envision the worst case. We mm. envision one failure, never five. You know, we never think through what is the worst thing that could happen here and then go through and think about the cost versus um, solving the problem, right? Is it worth paying the money or paying the engineering cost to solve the absolute worst case? We always think in terms of like, okay, I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose one link in my writing protocol. It's going to converge in under a second. Well, not necessarily, Right. There are situations where that doesn't happen or, oh, I'm going to lose a single link. Yeah, but you don't think about that link flapping every 10 milliseconds because of some stupid bug yeah. in the driver. Right. And what that does. Um, yeah. So we, we often think about the best case and then we saw for, for one case down and then we yeah. let it go. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's really hard to fix that once things have been deployed because, I mean, to go back now and change the way the Wi-Fi Mac layer works is that's not going to happen. Right? <laughs> so we just have to engineer solutions on top of it that can deal with the variability that is built into the system now, um, which means like redundant links, uh, flow queuing or fair queuing between users, um, maybe undersubscribing sometimes if that's necessary. Um. Yeah. yeah. Basically, finding ways of working around the variability because the 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 variability is in it's in the Mac layers it's, and it's in the um the physical hardware and it, it it's it's just that's not going away. So we need solutions on top that can mitigate the problems and um, find workarounds. Basically, when when mitigation isn't isn't enough. So that's all really cool. This is this is really cool information. We're really, I mean, not paying as much attention to this stuff as we should. So, Bjorn, where can people get in touch with you or at least follow you probably? Like, I know this is on APNIC. Do you blog a lot on APNIC or do you have a blog for the company you work for or anything like that? I uh, have written a couple of posts for APNIC, APNIC um, and the domos.ai has a blog. So um, that's where I post the most stuff. Okay. And then I'm on Twitter as well. People are still there. <laughs> yeah, I still am. I mean, I don't yeah. know. I, I tried Mastodon for a little bit and I was struggling trying to figure my way around and I was like, okay, you know, this is a lot of work and I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, but it's, uh... I don't know how much time I want to spend figuring this out as opposed to just going on with my life. Um, yeah. So, Tom, how can people get in touch with you or follow you? I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search for Tom Ammon. That's it. That's it. That's it. I'm on LinkedIn okay. as well, by the way. Okay. I forgot okay, to cool. forgot about Good, that. Yeah. But yeah. Um, great. I'm actually going to link to Demos in the in the show notes when I get right. around to it I put it on my thing um, to do and I'm Russ White you can always find me here on the hedge you can find me at rule11.tech on LinkedIn 
and occasionally on Twitter. I've started logging in every now and again. <laughs> it's not social media is not my thing. I mean, I wrote my dissertation on social media basically, and it's kind of like once you understand the sausage factory, you're kind of like, yeah, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's such a great thing. Well, for all our listeners, thanks very much for joining us for this episode of The Hedge. We know your time is valuable, and we hope we're adding something interesting to your life. And uh, Bjorn, thanks for coming on. And Thanks for uh, having me. Yeah, that's it's all been great. And uh, I guess we'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.